You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 178. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook, and keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Back from the big smoke, the center of the Canadian universe, Hogtown, the city of many nicknames, or as Brennan, a huge Drake fan, refers to it, the six. For the majority of our listeners who are still likely unaware of what city I'm actually referring to, myself and Aaron just returned from Toronto where we spoke to audiences at The Money Show, the first time in person for over three years. We got in, we'll get into our talk and uh, the highlights of the event, including my take on the folly of macro forecasts. We have a big stock debate for you this week as the killer bees, Brennan and Brett, square off in a no-holds-barred battle. In the crosshairs this week is a company founded in Brennan's current stomping grounds, a city previously thought to be made up. Yes, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. The company Vesema Networks Inc., VCM on the TSX, develops hardware and software solutions for broadband access, content delivery, and telematics. The coin flip chose Brennan for the bear case and Brett as the bull. Aaron sits in as judge, jury, and executioner. In in light of recent interest rate hikes and the continued likelihood of more on the horizon, Aaron takes a brief look at the fixed income markets, bonds, GICs, T-bills, and a preview of some work he will be presenting at our fall 2022 upcoming seminars. So let's get to the show. Let me welcome my co-host, Aaron, the Killer Bees, Brennan and Brett. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Salutations. How was your guys' trip? It's great, it was, actually. It was good. I mean, we're, uh, you know, aside from the fact that I had to spend two days with Ryan, it was, uh, it was quite a worthwhile <laughs> yeah. Thank God experience. not in the same room, right? So No, no, no. Actually, Ryan went out a, a day before me, so I, you know, he was there a little bit longer. But I'm just Ryan, in a little a more panel. demand than Aaron is. You did a panel the first day. Um, so yeah. for anybody who doesn't know, we were at the Money Show. This is in Toronto. This is the first in-person event that the Money Show has done since the start of the pandemic. It's the first time I've spoken in front of a live audience since the start of the pandemic. So it was exciting, but we, we had a good crowd. I didn't make Ryan's. I wasn't able to see Ryan's panel. He was on a panel with a few other people on the yeah, first I think there day. was about 350 people for mm-hmm. that. So it was pretty good. Yeah. yeah. For, for the room. And yeah, it was a good, good panel, quick and dirty in and out. Uh, talked about a couple stocks. Um, you know, they asked us to make macro forecasts and I politely declined or less politely declined. I'm kidding. But yeah, we just, you know, I'll talk about why we don't, tend to make a ton of macro forecasts but you know we talked about uh some individual companies and what we should focus on in the market right now so it was good it was good anybody else make macro forecasts on the the i mean uh, throughout the the conference like uh, i'll talk about that i sat down on a couple and i mean that's what that's what the financial industry does right makes my forecast how about on your panel 
Uh, you know, they, it was more trying to find value in individual securities within the current environment, within like a bear market environment. So there mm-hmm. wasn't a ton, like, you know, people, there's a little bit on where you know, they thought interest rates would be going. And, but most of that is just extrapolation of what is going on right now. Right. So, I mean, so nobody we can make fun of on the podcast or. Oh, lots. I mean, we can. We, I don't know if we want to name specific well, names. Ryan but, prefers um, to do this from his alternative Twitter account, so not... Yes. <laughs> his burner his the, the yeah. dummy, the burner Twitter Twitter like account. Like the rest of the internet, rip right? everybody in the industry. <laughs> Good. It's true. And then Ryan and I spoke on the last day on the on the, the Saturday, uh, and it was great. It was a great room. Like, we had, we had a pretty full room, um, which yeah. was nice to see, nice to speak in front of a full room. We talked about Ryan talked about some small caps, gave a couple specific names, uh, you know, made fun of our made fun of our beloved prime minister a little bit, which is pretty typical. If anybody's seen one of Ryan's speeches, I talked about the SaaS research. It's the low lying technology. Through. It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy. I know it's just it's, it gets a little too easy. Although I do have that photo of you that I showed at the World Outlook with you shaking hands. With Trudeau, so I'm gonna have to uh, expose. I did have a, one sometime. of those buzzers in my hand, though. I had right, one of those yes. buzzers. Yeah, so that's what we didn't see a, is the electric. A high-grade shock buzzer, uh-huh. so yeah, yeah. it may no, have contributed. I, to, I talked. To I talked a, about the the software industry in the U.S., which is down, um, you know, about 24 percent overall. But we were showing that some of the, you know, some of the big names in the space are down 80 percent, um, even as far as 90 percent, like the Zooms, the Palantirs. Um, you know, there's a couple other names that I had on there as well. And then you gave, gave some, some recommendations from that. Also, we talked about dividend growth stocks. Are they still appropriate in the current environment? So people stuck around for, yeah, I think that was the great part. Yeah. We spoke for 45 minutes Mm -hmm. and yet we literally closed down the event. Uh, Like 90% of the room stayed for an hour and 15 after Mm -hmm. to chat with us, go over the markets, look at individual securities uh, stocks that they had in their portfolio. I mean, like some of the common questions we got were on like companies like Shopify and Lightspeed, which, you know, cause Aaron had Shopify in his presentation. I think it's what 82% either from the yeah, highs, but not as a recommendation. No, not as a recommendation. I mean, like it, as a cautionary Shopify, tale. Yeah. Shopify, tremendous revenue growth, tremendous yeah. revenue growth. It just has never met our criteria during this whole period because the underlying fundamentals the cash flow and the multiple you were being asked to pay off that uh, was too high, and so you know we I talk we talk about this all the time. You know, price is what you pay, value is what you get, and we were never getting anything close to value in Shopify. And the, the sh- astonishing part is, well, you know, so then you get from the audience with it down eighty two percent. Is it not now? It must be a screaming buy. It must be screaming value in my portfolio. And, you know, Aaron just ran through the numbers looking forward uh, in terms of earnings or cash flow on the business. And, you know, it's just under 100 times still that you're asked to pay for that business, which now is experiencing a little bit of a revenue decline and also margin compression this year as they're, you know, competing with Amazon on same day delivery. And, you know, it's a great goal to have and, and it may be something they're able to achieve. We think it's a great product and service that they offer to their end clientele, but has that, you know, has the value ever been there to come into our universe where we like growth at a reasonable price? No, it, it hasn't been there. 
and we continue to, you know, we'll continue to monitor Shopify, but it's not going to be a buy for our clients in our portfolios. This similar can be same with Lights, Lightspeed. A tremendous revenue growth roll-up story has a ton of cash in the bank relative to its uh, uh, market cap, but you know it's just forecasting adjusted EBITDA positive. You know on a forward basis, it's just it's price to sales. While the stock has absolutely plummeted, uh, is still and it's not the price to sales. It's really the price to cash flow that we're looking at. It's not there. It's not value in the market right now. And uh, we looked to other companies, some you know that we put into our SaaS report that we recently put out that actually have growth in underlying cash flow and trade at you know relatively reasonable valuations. Although you know Aaron talked about this in his presentation, have the valuations swung back to where we think there's screaming buys in SaaS uh, or, or technology in the U.S.? No, not yet. They haven't gone to there. They're, they're fair to you know they've come back to the average of maybe the last ten years. So. That does not scream a buy to us. And there's some individual situations we're looking at, but we're not at the point where we're saying screaming buys in that sector yet. So did we want to uh, discuss uh, a couple articles or one article that we saw this week? And then I'll get into so. a little bit more about, you know, I was reading a, a memo, uh, Howard Marks's memo on the way back, and we can get into that after we look at this. Yeah, I mean, this was interesting. It's an article from uh, Bloomberg. Congress, there's going to be, or there's a proposal for a Congress stock trading app. Essentially, the symbols are NAC and Cruz, so probably Nancy Pelosi and Ted Cruz, mm -hmm. I believe. Uh, yeah, basically. So essentially, a pair of exchange-traded funds that would mirror the personal portfolios of members of Congress. It may be coming soon. Uh, the fund would be constructed of between include it's this is in the filings 500 and 600 uh, companies so they'd be called the usual whale subversion democratic etf under nance uh, and then the unusual yeah is it or the usual yes yeah, so it's the usual yeah, they're whale both unusual republican yes yes yeah yes, like that's are. their company branding yeah <laughs> yes i get it okay now the I would say financial industry, kudos, you've done it again. Like, let's not try to create great investment vehicles or strategies based on tools that historically achieve success or have some kind of reasonable, testable, novel concept that should work. You know, let's place clients in investments that genuinely that we believe will create wealth for the long term. Hell no, let's not do that. That sounds boring. Instead, let's slap together a headline grabbing marketing vehicle that is half baked and based on the hope that Congress are basically all corrupt and or great investors. Well, one could argue for the first, the second is not true. And it's, to me, it seems ironic that the same investors that will probably flock to an ETF like that are the same ones that call Congress morons on a daily basis. But apparently they assume they are all legendary investors. So even if this holds true, do any of you truly believe that Congress holds all the power and levers to ultimately make any stock they choose hugely successful? Yes, Congress decisions are, they have to be the only factor one should choose in making their investment models. Not the quality of companies management, it's effing products or services, the company's valuations, it's growth prospects, interest rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These, I'm going to say, are crap vehicles designed to grab headlines and draw investors to the fund companies. In fact, they should actually do the opposite. 
Uh, I will go on to say, again, we said the disclosure in this fund says it'll have between five and 600 holdings. With, me with that many stocks, the, it'll basically track the index. You can have, and we talk about this all the time, you can have a well-diversified portfolio with 20 to 25 stocks. The exercise of this fund, to me, is ridiculous. Finally, to top it off, they're charging 1% fee for an exercise which needs little research, zero original thought, and could basically be run by the average hamster. In fact, I predict over the long term, a hamster invested in the S&P 500 will beat this ETF. And that's all I have to say about that. Yeah. Tell me well, your there's, opinion. There's a Tell prediction. We make annual predictions, so maybe we should take a look at this in a year and see how it performs. Yeah, if it even gets listed. Yeah, maybe it, it was just done for headlines. Even if it gets... And that is like an interesting case. Maybe it was just for headlines because I was reading an article yeah. where uh, last week on Wednesday, uh, the Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, said that they would bring legislation to the House floor this month that would place new restrictions on the ability of lawmakers to buy and sell stocks. And then um, they say a version of a legislative framework in the House outlined in a late August memo that was reviewed by the New York Times would effectively prohibit lawmakers, their spouses, and dependent children from making trades in individual stocks, bonds, crypto, and other financial assets to, tied to uh, specific companies, but they could essentially invest in mutual funds and ETFs still. So, Which, which would know, be fine because which would be fine. I mean, a mutual fund an ETF or an ETF is going to um, have a very wide net. So they're, they're any type of For insider sure. trading or knowledge isn't going to be relevant. I suppose the exception could be if you're talking about an industry ETF, mm -hmm. maybe one, uh, one of the political, yeah. one of the politicians would have some information specific about an industry or legislation was going to be passed either benefit or, um, negatively impact an industry. So that I, I suppose there could still be some, but, uh, yeah. I'm yeah. Gonna... In that case, like there, there was a discussion and, you know, much discussion on Twitter and Reddit about uh, Nancy Pelosi's and, you know, there it was ahead of the funding for the semiconductor industry, essentially, and, you know, holding securities like in NVIDIA that could possibly benefit from that ahead of that. And, you know, it's, it's happened in many times. I mean, there's a, a Twitter or Twitter, a Twitter. I just combined Reddit and Twitter. That's impressive. <laughs> uh, like there's a Twitter uh, account that basically tracks all of her trades and her, and her husband's trades. And, you know, it has like 164,000 followers. So, I mean, mm -hmm. you put this ETF, you know, that gets on that. So you got 165,000 potentially people that are watching that. I mean, you get a lot of press, but I mean, it just, I would just hope we could do better in the financial industry. There's a ton of crazy, stupid, to be honest, uh, ETFs that track ridiculous uh, things in the market that really aren't designed uh, in an effort to, you know, really provide great returns over the long term for clients. They're designed to grab headlines for the fund in, in our or the ETF company, in my opinion. Yeah, and right. when you initially and and they'll this... get investors investing in them, but that's that's a that's. Yeah, that's sure. an indictment yeah. of the investors who are putting their money behind these things. Yeah. When you initially brought this up to me, I thought that we were like going to be talking about like 40 to 50 to 60 stocks in this ETF or something, not 500 to 600 holdings. Yeah, um, I mean, there's so many things that you can rip apart this type of ETF yeah. that it's just on so many different levels that make it ridiculous. And charging the 1% fee to me is insane too. Like it's just, anyways, mm -hmm. we could go on and on about that, but. 
Is there any any other headlines we want to discuss today? Well, just, or we just want no. To talk before we about, move yeah. on, there is one other statement that I would like to make about um, about these ETFs, and that's that if they're going to be tracking um, the public disclosures of members of Congress to make their investment decisions, one thing that investors also have to keep in mind is that there's going to be a lag period. Um, between when a position potentially is held in a portfolio and when it's disclosed. So it's not going to be an immediate disclosure. I mean, you're typically going to be, I would, I don't know. It's 45 days. 45 days. Yeah. Right. Okay. So you're talking about six weeks between, between disclosures. So you're always going to be a little bit behind. That means that, you know, some of these ETFs could be buying securities while these members of commerce are actually selling them or, if they are actually trading on short-term inside information, um, the benefit of owning the security may have already passed, may have already moved up in price before the ETF, the public disclosure is out and the ETF has the opportunity to buy it. So you're always going to be, you're always going to be trailing. There's always going to be a trailing time period here. Um, and so to me, there's that, that's fraught with, with complication, but just something to keep in mind. Sure. Yeah, and, and we're not here to say like naively that there hasn't been in the history of you know a member of Congress or a, a member of Parliament somewhere in the world that has benefited from insider trading transactions. Like it has happened, it will happen. Is there a fund that can actually track that and benefit from it? And the structure of this fund, like even if you held that as a constant that, that this was happening all the time, um, it just doesn't seem like it would at all be able to benefit from that type of uh, information or anything, any type of trading strategy that that's going on. It just seems extremely gimmicky and kind of raises my blood <laughs> because, uh, you know, it just, I see this a lot in the industry and it, it becomes farcical when there should be in, it should be the goal to, of the industry to be going out there and creating a product or just doing a ton of research to find companies that can create wealth for investors over the long term, not something that create headlines. Yeah, and this That's isn't the first opinion. time that we've brought up an ETF like this. Remember, we were talking oh, about Dave, Dave Portnoy's, Dave po- yeah. Portnoy's Vanek Social Sentiment ETF, the ticker symbol B-U-Z-Z, Buzz, yeah. which like follows the most talked about uh, stocks We should track how that's done over the... You well, know, it's down... It's down 40%, but yeah, we should look at its holdings and whatnot, but yeah, it is yeah. down 40% since it started trading. But Yeah, anyways. we could maybe Very do a deep dive on that, maybe one or two other um, yeah. ETFs. The only like thing is it would be week. more for just, yeah, it'd be really just for, you know, showing the folly in it. I mean, which again yeah. can be, have some value for sure. But uh, I mean, not surprised to see a fund like that down 40% since inception. Yeah. Now, I was doing some reading on one of Howard Marks's memos. We talked about Howard Marks on a previous show. I think you can go back and see the, uh, the information we had on him kind of as a legendary investor. Uh, I was reading one of his memos on the flight home from the money show in Toronto. Now, I found the subject matter, which basically amounts to the futility of macro forecasts. It spoke to me. We had both just attended financial conferences at which economists and investors made multiple or a multitude of economic and specific market-related macro forecasts. It was one of the first in-person events that I had attended in quite some time, and many of the talks opened by highlighting the abnormalities experienced over the past two-plus years. At one of the presentations that I had attended, the host spoke about how crazy the economic environment had been since the start of 2020. We experienced a totally unpredictable global pandemic, unprecedented government 
handouts and resulting debt increases, a massive spike in inflation, rapid rate increases, the rise and volatility of digital assets, and the war in Ukraine were just some of the uh, events cited. Throwing his hands into the heavens, he stated that even the Almighty would have had a hard time predicting all these basically unpredictable events. The panelists, as well as the crowd, had a huge laugh. What I assume could only be a combined chuckle designed to let everyone off the hook for the macro forecast and subsequent investments based off those forecasts that had that these events had not only rendered useless, but it helped turn them into steaming dog turds in their portfolios. But then the chuckling died down and the presenter blissfully moved forward with a whole new set of bold macro forecasts immediately. The audience, and never fail, raise their iPhones to snap up each bold prediction about everything from where inflation will be in the next year to the direction of the housing market, the price of gold, Bitcoin, and where the US dollar will be in 2023. So the same people whose models were proven wrong were back at it, working hard, or in some cases hardly working in my opinion, to provide the audience with a whole new set of macro predictions. And the same crowd which used those flawed macro forecasts to dismal results was eagerly lapping up the new macro forecast and laughing away the last several years. As I looked around the room, I found myself wondering how it appeared that most were missing the utter insanity of this. Now, they say the definition of insanity is repeating the same mistakes over and over. Without learning from our mistakes, recognizing what does not work from a probability perspective, we are doomed to continually make the same mistakes. But this is the engine of the financial industry at work. Macro forecasts provide the illusion of knowledge and control. If spoken with conviction by talented, intelligent professionals, they are calming and provide more important and are more importantly saleable. Now, if these macro forecasts went on, if these macro forecasters went on stage and in most cases truthfully said, I don't have a reliable or actionable way of accurately predicting where inflation, interest rates, or the price of gold will be next month, in one year, or five years from now, you're less likely to buy their fund, ETF, or trading program. Investors are just as guilty for buying into the illusion of macro forecasts. These saleable lies the industry feeds investors, which most find comfort in, and the cycle continues. Now, I would submit that the fact that the list of events, the pandemic, government response, fast rate hikes, etc., was so extensive, does this not show the complete folly of macro forecasts? In fact, if they can just be derailed so simply by unpredictable events, which are quite frequent, they should be rendered useless. In his memo, Marx made another great example. I will quote or paraphrase from him here. So in the fall of 2016, there were two massive consensus macro forecast. Number one, Hillary Clinton would win the election. Number two, somehow if Trump was elected, the markets would tank. So what actually happened? Trump won and the market soared. Should this not help convince investors of the complete lack of value in macro forecasts? Now, next week, I'm going to summarize Mark's arguments on the futility of macro forecasts, but I think that's enough for my, uh, my uh, sandbox speech here for today any comments on that guys well i noticed that you said that um that the speaker went on to make uh a number of different macroeconomic forecasts and all sorts of different area from gold commodities bitcoin interest rates inflation and 
that's actually a very common technique that forecasters will use is that they will make a large number of predictions. They'll make those predictions publicly. And if you make enough predictions, eventually, just by the law of probability, one or two of those is going to come right, eventually. Um, and those are the ones that you're going to hear about next year at the conference, typically speaking, unless, you know, you, yeah, you it's, don't it's get a, a common one right. But the more predictions strategy. you make, the more likely it is that one of those are going to hit, just, just by pure luck of the draw. Um, and that's really what a lot of forecasting is about. Is it, it's about making a lot of predictions and then focusing on the one or two that end up being correct or close to correct. So, But this does not provide any value whatsoever when it comes to making investment decisions. So if you're an investor and somebody's making a prediction on where interest rates are going to be, yeah, if they're 100% correct with the timing, with the magnitude of the change, there are actionable investment decisions you could make off of that. Um, but at the same time, you know, if they're making 10, 12 different predictions, well, how are you going to determine which prediction to follow and which investment decisions to make? It's virtually impossible. And then it just comes again. It just comes down to chance. Yeah, part of what you said there is kind of the heart of uh, Marx's theory on why they're basically unprofitable forecasts for a portfolio so we can talk about that and get into that more mm -hmm. next week but you know you and i know and probably all of you guys here know that we've been at many speeches over the the years that you know they've seen 25 forecasts made right like and and it's just it's not actionable and then next year the two that actually came true by pure happenstance by you know freak luck are highlighted in a presentation and you know, it doesn't have a lot of value if you don't go back and look at every prediction was made and either go a check or an X beside them. And if you're going to do it, just throw, you know, you throw anything at a wall, just, you know, something sticks after a while. There's, a, eventually, there's an expression eventually. about that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you may see me at one of those events also snapping photos of the predictions <laughs> mm -hmm. up on the screen. But so it's I, not, can so I can make investment decisions. Year. Yeah. So I can come back next year and say, why, why are you wrong? Nineteen out of 20 fair. times. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head, Ryan. Just not not actionable. You know the amount of times that uh, like I've even been to conferences now, and people talk about maybe some gloom and doom scenario, and you know that's going to happen on this day or this month, and nothing actionable from it. It's like you know people come to these conferences for investment advice or uh, you know ideas, idea generation. Um, you know, something that's actionable that you can actually, you know, make a move on in the market. Um, but yeah, a lot of the time I see, you know, just some ideas thrown out there and no nothing that's actionable built on that idea. Yeah, I mean, that's why I like to go to an event where it has, I want, you know, here is two or three either commodities or stocks to buy. This is why this is, you know, like making 20 predictions on the everything from where the price of wheat and corn and gold and Bitcoin will be in a year or, you know, it's just, it, it there's not, a, it, either there's too much actionable or it's too broad that, you know, it's not an actionable, actionable event that you can actually uh, profit from. And I mean, that's what we're trying to do. That's why we, when we do a speech, we'll give one or two or three individual uh, recommendations that, you know, can actually go back on in a year, two years, and look to see if we are correct in those areas. So, yep. And again, we don't want you buying just one or two stocks. I mean, that's, that's uh, even if we've done all the research, you know, this is what we talked about too, 15 to 25 stocks, build that over a 12 to 24 month period. So uh, taking just one recommendation from anyone is, is not a good practice as well too. 
So, all right, um, Aaron, should we get into your um, as as you've got an issue with your uh, you, you could be losing your computer uh, your juice here. So let's get into yours. Then we've got a debate, a much anticipated debate between uh, Brennan and ba- Brett on Vesema Networks. But let's get to your, uh, you're going you're gonna to look at a little bit at the fixed income market, correct? Sure. So I just wanted to just let everybody know a little bit about what we're doing um, in the current environment. So as, as, you know, in the past, like just from the perspective of fixed income, fixed income for a lot of the last decade has not been an area where you're, you're going to generate um, much of a positive income return, right? So when I say fixed income, I'm talking bonds, GICs, um, you know, which is essentially debt. You're essentially buying debt from the government or from a bank or from a company. And just like with a bond, you're getting you're getting a, a regular coupon payment, which the debtor who you buy it from is is legally obligated to make. Usually it's every six months, there's going to be a coupon payment, an interest payment, and then your principal, 100% of it is returned at the end of the maturity date, which could be one, two, three, four, five years or 10 years or longer. Um, but things with the with the way that interest rates have trended over the past six months, um, things have changed somewhat in the fixed income market. So I think it makes a lot of sense for investors, for our clients, that we take a look and reassess how fixed income can fit into an investor's portfolio. Uh, we talked about this a little bit at the conference, but I'm gonna really I'm really doing a deep dive over the next couple of weeks here. Um, and we're going to put out our fixed income investing report that basically gives people a roadmap for understanding the fixed income um, investment class and then you know implementing a fixed income strategy, which means essentially determining, well, one, whether or not fixed income is an appropriate investor or investment for, for that, that individual, um, understanding what some of the risks and opportunities are, and then looking at like what well, like what are the practical steps of actually purchasing fixed income securities in your portfolio. So it's pretty interesting because, you know, if I were to look at, say, GICs um, a year ago, you you essentially were getting no return, like in many cases, 1%. Um, I think at some points, even less. But nowadays, when you look at GICs, you know, a lot of them are paying um, 4, 4.5%, even starting to push up to 5%. Now, you know, GICs, they come in in different forms. So I think it's important that people understand what's available. I mean, you can, you know, typically when you get a traditional conventional GIC, one of the things that investors need to know is that your money is locked in. You cannot just, you can't sell it like you can with a bond. Um, you can't redeem it early or, you know, potentially you can but with a lot of with a lot of fees involved in that that really make it not worthwhile. But there are different types of GICs. For example, there's a cashable GIC um, where you can redeem it, but you're of course going to get a lower interest rate, so those those aren't paying you know four or five percent. Um, so understanding you know what types of products are out there for people, um, you know comparing like say a GIC to a bond, uh, you know if you're implementing a, a fixed income strategy, a lot of people will say, well, do I just buy GICs? Do I buy individual bonds? Do I buy a bond ETF? So we'll be exploring a lot of that um, and just really understanding. So I'll just just as an example, you know, this here is a uh, the BMO aggregate bond ETF. This is ZAG. So this is just like your typical diversified, primarily Government of Canada um, bond ETF. ZAG is is the is the symbol. So they would own 
a portfolio of different bonds that are that are you know diversified by maturity date. In some cases, diversified by issuer. Most of it's going to be Government of Canada. You know, some of them are going to be AAA or AA um, corporate bonds or just investment grade corporate bonds. But you know, there's a lot of information here. You have your weighted uh, average coupon. You have your annualized distribution yield. Your weighted yield to maturity. So if somebody's looking at this, how do you determine like what type of income you're actually going to get from this bond? So from this bond ETF. So just essentially looking through, um, you know, a couple of these, giving some examples of how of how people can 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 purchase a a portfolio of of bonds uh, and and fixed income and, and determining like what type of asset allocation is is going to be appropriate in certain cases. And a lot of cases, like people will not need to to have any fixed income necessarily, but a lot of people should probably look at, at um, you know, purchasing some type of fixed income allocation. Now, another question that I really wanna dive into as well, and, and we've heard this is, in an era of rising interest rates or higher interest rates, does it still make sense to own dividend stocks or dividend growers? So I think that's also an important question to, to answer too. I've got a, uh, it's really interesting, let me share my screen again here. It's a really interesting report that I look at on, on an annual basis. It's from RBC Capital Markets. Um, and what they do is they, they analyze the performance of dividend-paying stocks um, and dividend growers over a long-term period. So if you can see here on my screen, screen dividend-paying stocks have outperformed from 1986 to 2021. Dividend growers producing average annual returns. This is for the TSX of 11.2%. Compare this to non-payers, so companies that don't pay any dividends, a 1.4% average. So huge outperformance there, but also lower risk. Um, annualized volatility, which is a measure of risk. Dividend growers, 13.2%, a little over half the volatility or half the risk measured by volatility um, relative to, to non-payers. So this is... Um, I, I find this really interesting, and I think that you know, even in an environment of rising interest rates or higher interest rates, dividend growth stocks still have a place in an investor's portfolio because there's certain things that dividend growth does that a bond will not do. So, for example, you know, you might be able to get a 3.3% income yield off of a bond ETF right now, um, but that that is those coupon payments that you get; they, they will never grow. Um, unless you buy a bond down the road that has a higher interest payment, but you get what you get with a bond, and um, it's 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 essentially just just a flat fixed coupon payment. Um, but as you know, your bonds mature and you're getting new bonds. If interest rates are going down, you may actually in five years be getting a lower yield income yield on your portfolio. Portfolio. Whereas with a dividend growth stock, the the thing that different one of the things that differentiates the income stream is that if you have a good dividend grower, that dividend is actually growing over time. So five years from now, 10 years from now, you're looking at um, a high likelihood of higher dividends than you're getting today. So we like that. We like the, you know that attribute of investing in dividend growth stocks. Um, we like to be able to invest in companies that are growing as well, reinvesting a portion of their cash flow back into the business so that they can grow their earnings, so that they can grow their dividends over time. You're getting the, the potential of capital appreciation from um, a dividend growth stock, whereas you're not getting that from bonds. So while for some investors, having fixed income in their portfolio is a good idea, uh, having a dividend growth 
component of your portfolio we we believe is absolutely is absolutely vital for investment success long term. And if you look at the numbers that I showed you from RBC Capital Markets, you know you can see you really put yourself um, systemically at a disadvantage if you're not if you don't have an active dividend growth strategy in your portfolio. So, how do you combine the two? How do you allocate capital to to fixed income? What should you buy? How do you buy it? And then how does this relate to to also your dividend? Um, equity strategy as well. So this is, we're, we're expecting the report to come out um, over the next couple of weeks here. And as we have more information, I'll, I'll share it on the show. Yeah, thanks. It's a good summary. And like we've talked uh, to put it in cheesy terms, dividend growth stocks as a, as a secret weapon in your portfolio, really. Like, I mean, to outperform over the long term with less volatility, like those two things you don't typically see, right? Like to have less volatility and outperform over the long term, put those together. Uh, it's, a, it's a great combination for your portfolio. That's why we look for dividend growth stocks in our income research and even in our small cap research, you know, growth and companies that institute dividends. I mean, we had a couple of companies in our small cap research increased their dividends this year, and one of them that we, you know, just picked up coverage on in December is implementing a dividend by year's end. It's a good thing to have these dividends to be able to use some of your cash flow to uh, distribute back to uh, a, uh, shareholders, but also then use part of it to continue to grow the company over time. A dividend often implements a discipline on management to know that each quarter they have to you know, share, share some money, some, some of the pot with shareholders, and they tend to mind their cash flow better than companies that uh, can uh, have a quarter or two or even a year when they dip into negative cash flow. But if you always know that you have to pay something out, you tend to mind the cash flow statement a lot more, which we think adds to returns over the long term. So bull versus bear stock battle. Now we're going to do our debate, correct? Correct. Aaron, you yeah. ready to be a judge? Sure. I'm Jerry just going to set my, my timer up here. Set up the timer? Uh, I'm ready to win. So let me check. <laughs> That's not how you're talking before the show. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we're going to, Vesema is in the crosshairs. Do you have a summary on Vesema, either Brennan or Brett, the, just what the company does? or I do. I can do read you do? It. Okay, perfect. Go, go yeah, for it. Yeah, so Vesema Networks, VCM oh, on the TSX. He's already ending it for um, you. I think they traded <laughs> around $17.75. Um, and so essentially Vesema provides technology solutions that empower network service providers and content providers to connect people and enterprises to information and entertainment worldwide. Uh, it offers products for the cable and broadcast industries, uh, which provides video and broadband access to service providers, content creators, and broadcasters. Uh, the company operates through three segments. It's video and broadband solutions, content delivery and storage, and telematics. Okay, thanks for the summary. Are you ready to? Uh, Shall I? Are, are we? Have we know who's going first? Pardon? You can go first if you want. I'll go first. I'll go first. You know, going, okay. going first is uh, maybe maybe hurting my record here, just with the the recency effect. I don't know. We'll see. I, aren't we supposed to be flipping to see who goes first? Sure, do it. Well, I don't have a coin, so it's okay. Just <laughs> well, let me go first. The let judge is prepared. He's really okay. Prepared. So you're gonna go first, the brave man, Brennan. I okay, am. you're ready. I am. Go. 
Vesema's financial momentum appears to be positive, with revenue up 60% year-over-year, but the company's historical growth has been a bit spotty, with a CAGR of just 5% from 2015 to 2021. And earnings have also jumped in and out of profitability, where over the last 12 quarters, the company had a medium median net income margin of just 2.5%. With these slim margins, the company trades at pricey multiples of over 60 times earnings and 16 and a half times adjusted EBITDA. We used to love the company's cash-rich balance sheet, where from 2015 to 2020 it held over two dollars in net cash per share but this beautiful net cash position recently slipped into a net debt position of 26 cents per share plus its payout ratio for the first nine months of the year is 73 percent which is up from around 40 percent in 2017 and 2018 when we had a buy rating on the stock vesum is a quality business but with its high valuations and spotty profitability i think the stock remains a hold and is not growth at a reasonable price boom okay four seconds left whoa Anything else to add? You're done. Eh. <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, hey, that was right to the point. Right to the jugular. Okay. Let's see what mm-hmm. uh, what Brett can do. Are you ready, Brett? I am ready. Go. Vesma has strong revenue growth of 60% year over year and strong net income growth of 36%. Even stronger adjusted EBITDA growth of 314% in that does not have much share compensation. This is on the back of his Entra family of products whose sales grew by 142% due to the rising switch to distributed access architecture or DAA across the globe. As well, the balance sheet is strong with $55 million in working capital and only $4.5 million in net debt while being able to contain... Maintain a consistent dividend since 2014. Vesema technology enables upload speeds up to 6.2 gigabytes per second, which I'm sure Brennan would love as it takes two hours to upload after the recording. Both the US and Canadian governments have financially supported the industry with 20.4 billion and 2.75 billion in funding to support expansion of internet access, which requires products products Vesma makes to succeed. You may say competitors will be, be able to compete, but Vesma has been have has a backlog of research to support its products with 350 million in R&D in the past seven years. The great products have resulted in 45 customers ordering from six continents up from 33 in the prior year. Two seconds left. Wow, talk wow. about going for the juggler. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brett, Brett you had like a lot to say. You were, you were going at yeah. rapid speed there. Yeah, he's, he was tripping yeah, the Saskatchewan copper. In that <laughs> so, so they actually put out, uh, Vesema actually put out a news release yesterday about its products being in um, eight of the top 12 cable operator <laughs> companies. What do you guys think of that? Any any last minute comments on that? Anything? I don't think I need to make my case any further. So in other words, it's my case here. Um, and that is continuing them acquiring customers. They have great global coverage. If you look at the, I, I wish I'll put it up on the screen afterwards, but we won't be able to see it. Uh, they essentially control all of North and South America and then a bit of Europe, if I remember correctly, in a few spatterings around the rest of the world mm-hmm. for these technologies mm-hmm. okay okay so i i honestly you guys both made some some interesting points here um now i was given a question i was i was asked a question by a client on Vesema yesterday in regards to the press release so i actually did get a chance even before the the debate to take a look at the company's financials just so everybody knows Vesema is a company that has been under coverage in our research in the past um you know at the time it had it had good growth and earnings a low valuation and a net cash balance sheet um this was years ago now as brennan mentioned it's now in a net debt position not much of a net debt position still a strong balance sheet but we have seen the cash um fall and uh it's you know 
although the, the the balance sheet is still strong, it has it has become less strong over time. Um, now, Brett, I don't know if you you th- there has been a, a, a nice acceleration in earnings growth lately. So mm-hmm. in the past couple of years, when I've looked, earnings has been have been low. Um, the earnings growth has been negative at times. There's been a lack of profitability, but just in recent financial reports, the company has really started to grow their earnings again. It's actually fairly impressive growth in earnings per share in the last quarter. I think it was about 70% or so. Um, yeah, am I correct funny. on that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's somewhere around there. Yeah. It, but it's, but it's really impressive. You know, the problem is that even with that level of revenue growth, earnings are still pretty low and <laughs> You know, Brennan made maybe one of the best 60 times earnings right now, right? And I, I like the press release. Like, I mean, it sounded great. Eight out of 12 operators in, in North America, cable operators, to be in that many major cable operators is, is a fantastic achievement for the company. But there was really no specific information provided financially on what that means. So one of the things that I was kind of struggling with when I'm looking at that is, well, is like a lot of this work that they've already done and it's already in the past financials or some of it new sales that is going to drive you know greater amount of growth going forward and the information just wasn't there is any of this going to be recurring or are they one off so when i look at the company right now i see a company that is improving is exciting but am i going to buy it right now no I'm not going to buy it right now because the, the the earnings per share, the earnings, they're they're just not significant enough. They're still relatively low. Sixty times earnings for what's you know essentially a hardware company. Hardware generally trades at a lower valuation relative to software companies. You know that's expensive. It's not a net cash business anymore. Um, I have seen this company you know exhibit some pretty significant volatility in financial performance. I'm not so much on the revenue line, but certainly on the profitability line. So while I, I think you both did a great job, it pains me to say I'm giving this one to Brennan. Brennan's the winner. It pains you to say? It pains you? It pains you. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Th- again, I think it was one on the coin toss there. I agree. I think. And what I think that really should be pointed out is Brennan is turning his back on his own city. Mm-hmm. I mean, this company was founded in Saskatoon. Really? And yeah, yes. and, and he, takes, now, he took the bear case. Yeah, but so. founded in Saskatoon. Yeah, they're, they're actually their 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 <laughs> facility is is very close to where I used to live. So yes, yeah, right outside. Well, Brennan, and if you're cool with in... turning your back on your people, that's well, okay. If if it uh, means getting the W to get the win, right? Well, you know, you're from Vancouver, right? Ryan, you're from the the Vancouver area. Uh, if it suits me well in the upcoming argument, you're going to... Okay, yeah, because you know there's a lot of yeah. junior mining companies that were founded here in Vancouver. <laughs> you're not going to yeah, turn your back I, I, I on beg them. to differ. No I revenue, beg to differ no that, profit. Ryan I beg to differ all. that they're actual companies. I, I don't even include them in my analysis uh, or okay. as a company. If you don't have a shred of revenue in your history, you're not really a business yet. That's convenient. You're just... Yes. Which the internet will rip you apart for. <laughs> <laughs> I hope, I hope so. so. I'd yeah. love to. Yeah. The, uh, the, do you not recall the, uh, what was it, the CEO from the TSX Venture tried to call me out on ripping uh, TSX listed mining exploration companies. And that, that was fun. <laughs> yeah. We look back to see what the index has done uh, since then. It's, it's been once again impressive performance. Thank you. If I, could just... I, I just look at the scoreboard is what I tell him. 
go, going back to Vesema, just to uh, put it into perspective for listeners. So when we initially recommended it in uh, June of 2014 and put a buy on the stock, the company had about 5% in revenue growth, had 70% in earnings growth, and was trading at about 14 times forward earnings. Um, so yeah. just putting that into perspective and into contrast of, you know, and maybe, you know, maybe, um, earnings growth is going to continue to be strong and they're going to grow into this valuation. But I, I'm just, I don't have the confidence that that's going to happen. Yeah. And you know, I have, I'm, I'm not even a hundred percent sure that earnings growth or maximizing margin or just, you know, doing what you need to do to achieve a stronger margin is really what the main focus of the company is. A lot of times, you know, these technology companies will say, well, we're investing in growth at the expense of profitability, growth mm -hmm. meaning in revenue growth and trying to acquire market share. Sometimes that works out, sometimes it doesn't. You know, we're looking at the cash flow, we're looking at the profitability. And I have to be honest, I because I did look at, at the company yesterday. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be, I would, I'm very interested in seeing how the company does over the next couple of quarters and how earnings trend, but I wasn't, I wasn't uh, opening up my my brokerage account to make any purchases at that point in time. I will add that that's the exact same conclusion. Me and Brennan were actually talking about this yesterday. We were, we were concluding on who was going to win. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I, I was yeah. saying just the valuation was straight up too high. If, if we were trading at a 10 PE, even, yeah. even a 20, it'd be more respectable. Yeah. But even if the technology is going to succeed and they're, it, it looks like it is to me, but if they, if they can't get those margins up, it's going nowhere. I'm not going to yeah. pay for zero cents on the dollar back. Yeah, exactly. And and you know, it's 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 actually like you look on just a share return basis, like it's done quite well this year <laughs> in a down market for hardware, software, anything to do with technology. So, I mean, they've had good news. I mean, it's likely on the backs of like you know, stronger you know, earnings relative for the company, good sixty percent plus jump in revenues. It's excellent to see. There's certainly worse companies out there, but you know what price are we paying for the underlying value and right now it does look to be quite high so i think that's the conclusion we'd have again this is nothing against the company it's just us looking at it from a fundamental perspective uh even if they are to continue to grow at this rate it, it would still likely be quite pricey right now mm -hmm. and uh you know and it, our watch then will be like what the, the everybody's been saying on the margin front and brennan you didn't really have to make that point you, you already won Right. So you already won, but thanks for <laughs> making the point there. I think you had that information just, you know, in your quiver, just expecting to lose and you, you just wrote more so you right. could say, but just look, look, no, I, I, no, you provided a good hysterical, or not hysterical too. <laughs> no historical context for where, you know, when, what multiple the company would have to be with what growth rate for us to actually consider it or buy. Right. And, and, you know, it had been trading back at those levels. Stock's done well since then. I mean, we'll, yeah. we, you know, happy to see, but I think right now it's a little, little more on the pricey side. Late to the party, if anything. Yeah, at this point, right for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, I think that does our show this week. Does it not? We're good. Does it? We does are it. good. Okay. Well, keep uh, rating us or reviewing us, subscribing to YouTube if you're on, just listening to the podcast. Uh, rate us and review us on there. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear your feedback. Keep your questions coming into our Your Stock, Our Take segments. If you've got a company you want us to debate, send it in to us now and we'll answer those questions. Thank everybody for listening. 
and wish you all profitable investing. Thanks. Profitable investing. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you.